This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this special Easter Sunday episode, we have questions from Emmeline, Susanna, Sam, Joanna, Caleb, and Amara. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with a couple of serious questions. Today we have questions from Emmeline and from Susanna. Here's Emmeline's question. What was Zerubbabel's reaction when they crowned Joshua? Now, if you recall, we were just looking at Zechariah chapter 6, and in that chapter, there is a coronation where the high priest Joshua receives a crown. And so, Emmeline's question is asking about how Zerubbabel, who was the governor, reacted to the crowning of Joshua, the high priest. Well, if you look in Zechariah 6, it may not surprise you to know that the Bible doesn't record anyone's reaction, even Zerubbabel's. But if anybody had a right to react and to be a little irritated, it certainly would have been Zerubbabel. Because remember, Zerubbabel was the rightful heir of the crown. He was a descendant of King David. He'd been appointed as the governor. So he was already the political leader of the people. So do you think he would have been angry that God passed him over? Well, I don't think so. First of all, this coronation was symbolic. Its purpose was to point forward into time towards the coming of the Messiah, who was going to combine the offices of priest and king. Secondly, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they seem to have had a good working relationship. They worked hand in hand for years in leading the people. They were probably friends because they'd had to support each other to have each other's backs over such a long period of time and and dealing with so much conflict. There's a third thing too. God had already prophesied a, a lot of important things for Zerubbabel including that he would not only lay the foundation of the temple, but actually finish and dedicate the building. So Zerubbabel had a lot going for him, and my guess is that uh, when this coronation took place, he was actually supportive. In fact, if I had to guess, I think Zerubbabel's reaction would have been fascination. Like everyone else, he was excited to see the mysteries of God's plan unfolding. Uh, Like the rest of them, he wouldn't have understood it all, but I think he was amazed by what was happening. Now, here's a question from Susanna. Jesus is called the lamb, but why not a ram? Because it's stronger. Well, Susanna, the lamb isn't the only animal associated with Jesus. He's also called the lion of Judah. That's why Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is a lion, and lions are stronger than rams. But the lamb is special because of its association with sacrifice. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, 
the the moment when Abraham was called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac, there's this interesting moment where Isaac looks around and he sees that they're going off to sacrifice, but they haven't brought an animal to sacrifice. And so he asks his father, where is this sacrificial animal? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now that response, although Abraham couldn't have known it, it's one of those signals in the Bible right at the beginning that foreshadows how God is going to save his people from their sin. God will provide a lamb for sacrifice, and this will be a very special lamb, Jesus. Now, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is not like any other sacrifice. It happened only once, not over and over like the other sacrifices. And unlike all the sacrifices that the priests, for example, offered in the temple, Jesus' sacrifice actually did what it symbolized. It actually atoned for sin. Whereas all those other sacrifices, they didn't do that work. They only symbolized it. You might think of it this way. All the sacrifices that, that went before the cross, they were just signs pointing to the real sacrifice that would atone for sin that would happen only at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that's why if you look at Revelation 5, you find that only Jesus has the power to take the scroll in John's vision. Now, there in Revelation 5, Jesus is described as both the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, meaning that he came from David's lineage and he succeeded David's throne, but also he's referred to as the Lamb that was slain, which refers to his sacrifice on the cross. And when they worship him in that vision, the elders sing, You were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So that's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Sam, who wants to know, when Jesus' body was dead in the tomb, was his soul in hell or heaven? Now this is a question that has a fascinating history in the church. And so it's a good one to explore today on Easter Sunday. So first things first. According to scripture, when we die, our spirits are separated from our bodies. And the same thing was true for Jesus, right? At the resurrection, which is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, Jesus' spirit and his body were reunited. And that's why we look forward to our own resurrections. Right? We know from the Apostle Paul that if you believe in Christ, when you die, your spirit goes to be with him. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But when we are raised again from the dead, as we will be if our faith is in Christ, then our spirits and our bodies, like Jesus's, are reunited. But the question here is, 
where did Jesus's spirit go between his death on the cross and his resurrection? Because the Bible doesn't address this question directly, doesn't just come out and answer it, when people speculate about this, there are two pieces of information that usually factor in. So let me give you both of them. So one of them is a verse from the scriptures, and the other is a line from the Apostles' Creed. So we'll start with scripture. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, we find a fascinating reference that Peter makes. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So the question is, what does this mean exactly? When you hear Peter talking about the gospel being preached to the dead, what dead is he referring to? What dead people were receiving the gospel through this preaching? Well, some people think that what Peter's talking about here is what came to be known later on as the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell is the idea that after Jesus's death, his spirit went to Hades, went to the underworld, and there he proclaimed his victory to everyone who believed in him but had died before he had come. Now, people who develop this theory of the harrowing of hell will often also point to a passage in Zechariah chapter 9, which we haven't reached yet in our study of Zechariah. But in that passage, Zechariah refers to God freeing the prisoners. And so people think, okay, well, this is what Jesus must have done. He went to Hades to the afterlife. He preached the gospel to the dead, proclaiming the good news, as Peter says, and he freed these prisoners and allowed them to come with him to the presence of God the Father, something like that. That's the theory. Okay, so that's one little data point, but there's a second one, as I said, and that's found in the Apostles' Creed. You remember when we recite the Apostles' Creed in worship, there's always this line. It comes between the reference to Jesus' burial and the reference to his resurrection, and we say that he descended into hell. So what's that all about? What's that all about, his descent into hell? Well, it certainly sounds like it could be about this harrowing of hell that we were just talking about, Jesus after his death and burial, goes to Hades and does this work of preaching and rescue that the harrowing of hell refers to. But let's pause here for just a moment. So I just want you to observe something. This is not a lot of information to base a theory on, right? We have a verse in 1 Peter that talks about the gospel being preached to the dead, we have a reference in Zechariah 9, which, as we're going to see when we get there, doesn't really seem to be talking about the same thing. And we put those things together, and we have a, a phrase from the Apostles' Creed, and we, we develop a big theory or a big story about what that must mean. 
uh, Jesus going down into hell and rescuing people, right? So as a general rule, I don't think it's a really good idea to build up a big theory like this on so little in the Bible to support it. You've got to be careful about substituting your theories for what the Bible clearly teaches. I think it's always better and okay to admit when we're not sure about things that the Bible doesn't make clear. I think it's better to admit that we're unsure than it is to make up a theory and then act like it's what the Bible clearly teaches. So if you have a, a theory that Jesus went to Hades after his death and burial and that he did some work down there, as, as many people in the church have had, just be careful to treat it as a theory, as an interpretation, and not to give the impression that it's really clearly explicitly taught in the Bible, because really, it's not. When the creed talks about Jesus descending to hell, this seems to be one of the, the, the things in a list of suffering that he endures as part of his death, right? That he is crucified, dead, buried, and descends into hell is, is kind of a string of examples of suffering that he endures on our behalf. Now, physical death and burial, that's part of suffering, right? The consequence of sin. But there are also spiritual consequences of sin as well. And Jesus also took upon himself those spiritual consequences, like spiritual alienation, being cut off from God. That's part of the penalty of sin as well. So just as Jesus in the crucifixion endures the physical punishment of our sins, he also endures the spiritual aspect as well. And it seems that this is what the creed is referring to. But we're not quite sure how this worked, and that's okay. Since today is Easter Sunday, I'm going to answer five fun questions, and all of them have a similar theme. These are all questions about my favorites. We'll have questions from Sam, from Caleb, from Amara, and two from Joanna. Let's start with Sam, who asks, In all your podcasts, what was your favorite question to answer? Well, my favorite question of all time was definitely this one because it was so easy to answer. Next question. Actually, here's a couple of questions from Joanna. She asks, what is your favorite color and what is your favorite song? My favorite color is British Racing Green, but I also like gray and I like red and I like silver and gold, but mainly I like green. Now, my favorite song, that's a tougher. My favorite song seems to be changing all of the time. I don't know about you, but I'll want to listen to a song over and over, and I just love it. And then I'll reach a certain point where I kind of get tired of hearing it, and then I'll have a new favorite. 
But having said that, there is a song that I've been singing in my head all day and for many days before this. And it's one that we sang for the first time today at church. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the song that we sang right before the sermon today. Last year, you may remember, I was preaching on 2 Timothy chapter 2. And while I was doing that, my friend David shared with me this song that's based on the same text. And I listened to it over and over again. And finally, I thought, we just have to sing this at church. So I gave the music to Bethany, and Bethany adapted it for us. And today, we sang it for the first time. So I guess I have a question for you, which is, did you like it? I hope so, because it truly is one of my favorites. Now, Joanna's brother, Caleb, has a similar question. He wants to know, what is your favorite hymn? Now, don't worry. I'm not going to say, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, as if I've already answered it, because I wouldn't consider that song to be a hymn. It's more of a chorus. So for favorite hymn, I think the best way that I can answer that is to, to, to mention a hymn to you that is one that I can't really sing without wanting to cry. But I mean that in a good way, like to cry uh, good tears, not because the song is so terrible it makes me want to cry, but because it's so wonderful it it makes me want to cry. So we sang this song on Good Friday, and it's called Who Is This So Weak and Helpless? And it's all about the the contrast between Jesus's uh, humility and his ultimate exaltation. There are so many good hymns, but honestly, I cannot think of a better one than that. And finally, Amara asks, what is your favorite vision of Zechariah? Now, I have to admit, I'm kind of sad that we have finished our look at the night visions of Zechariah because I loved doing that. And in a different way, I loved all of the visions. So it's really hard to single out one and say, this is my favorite. If I'm going to do that, I should probably say that it was vision number four, because that's the one where the high priest is cleansed. And that vision is not only beautiful, but it's also really important in speaking about our salvation. But I'm going to go ahead and go with vision five as my favorite. That's the one where the capstone is being brought to finish the temple. And as Zerubbabel carries that stone out, all the people are crying out and they're saying, grace, grace to it. And I think it's my favorite because whenever I see those words or hear them, grace, grace to it, I always think of our church, grace. And I read those words, it it, it makes me think of us and it makes me hope that we will always be a house that is covered by God's grace. I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. There's nothing I love more than hearing your questions and doing my best to answer them. So thank you for all of your questions. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember... If we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.